Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Every parent wants their child to come to them, don't you? Maybe you're a mom or a dad here this morning or a grandma or grandpa. And rather than having or envisioning your child struggling through something, you want your child to come to you. You want your child to dialogue with you. You want them to speak to you about their problems and difficulties. The worst possible scenario a parent can imagine is a child going through these difficulties on their own or isolated without help from those that have gone before them. You give them a process. You invite them to say, come and talk to me. Come and dialogue with me. And when they do wrong, you lay out a process by which you might be restored. I remember once, I won't tell you which child it was, but one of our kids, I walked by their room when they were young, three or four, and um, I heard them speaking to one of their toys, and they were disciplining their toy for having... (laughs) broken the rules, as it were. And they said, you've done a bad thing. You've sinned before the Lord. This is not how we spoke to them, but you've sinned before the Lord. And so you're going to get three spankings. I love you. Let's pray. (laughs) I promise it was more in depth than that, but there's a process that we lay out for our kids to be restored to us, isn't there? Perhaps if you're a mom and dad or, and you have a pattern of just icing your child out to try and get them to behave the right way, to kind of withhold yourself relationally, or you have another process of kind of this uh, system of whatever else it might be. If it doesn't involve a gospel kind of shape, this morning we might not be doing it the right way. Our experience with our kids actually mirrors our experience with our God human experience is marred by this division from this God that we so desperately want to know, who has the right answers, who knows how to go through the things that we're going through. From Genesis 3 on, there has been a division between God and man, and Israel was no exception. And as Exodus is kind of unfolded, one of the stories, one of the narratives that has come about is, what does it take for this holy, righteous God to dwell in the midst of this sinful, errant people? Now, Exodus has reached a point where God is about to come and dwell with his people, and God has taken to the process of telling them exactly what it takes for them to dwell with him. What does his holiness require? And when that holiness is violated, what is the process of restoration? It's like a child comes back to mother and father and admits they're wrong. What is the process for these people of Israel to be restored to their God? I wonder if we've gone through this section of Exodus starting in chapter 25 all the way through Exodus 31, which we'll finish next week, and I wonder if this is kind of the thing that we should be seeing, is that God equips his people with everything necessary to draw near without fear. I've 
tried all week to not get that to rhyme, and I couldn't do it. I don't know what happened. But God equips his people with everything we need to draw near to him without being in a state of fearfulness. God wants his people to come near to him. Just like a parent who desires so deeply for their struggling child to come to them, so this Father, this God in heaven, wants his people to draw near. Now, I got to tell you this morning, this is my fair warning here this morning. This text can feel like the junk drawer that you have in your kitchen. You all have it, right? The junk drawer where you put all the bits and odds that you don't know where else they go. And now, some of you are like organizational masterminds and you don't have the junk drawer. Good for you. For the rest of us, we have a drunk drawer, a junk drunk drawer. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't have one of those. You have a junk drawer in your kitchen where you throw all the bits, all the pieces, all the, all the odds and ends, and you collect all of those things together. Well, Exodus chapter 30 can feel like that. It can feel like, hey, we're talking about the altar of incense. Oh, well, no, we're talking about a, a census. And now we're talking about the laver. And now we're talking about anointing oil and incense. And it just feels like it's just all of this kind of mishmash of topics. So here's what I want to do. Here's my proposal to you this morning. This sermon might be a little bit different. We're going to kind of just unpack five different phases or four different phases of what the Lord is describing to us in these chapters. We'll make a few observations, and then we'll kind of pull it together in terms of what the New Testament sees these things as. So that's my heading this morning. So if it starts off a little dry, a little boring this morning, just hang in there. We'll get some, to something more exciting, perhaps. I'm going to start off in our text, and we're going to start off with this. The priest had specific items for drawing near. And so there's these description of four different movements in our text that we want to kind of pull together. It starts off with the directions for the altar of incense that Jody has read for us this morning. And I want to just kind of read through it briefly again. I think this is maybe one of the more important aspects of our text. He says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit shall be its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it, understanding or under its moldings on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which uh, to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and shall overlay them with gold. Now, we start off with just this basic construction, verses 1 through 5. This is another table inside the tent of meeting. It's supposed to be 18 to 20 inches deep and 18 to 20 inches wide or or deep and wide, whatever the the thing is. And then it's supposed to be about uh, 36 to 40 inches, 3 to 3.5 feet above the ground. Again, it was to be overlaid with gold. It's there in the holy place. Like all the other items that are there, it's overlaid with gold. It's supposed to be carried on poles uh, by the priests when they go from place to place. And this is its construction. But let's talk about what it's used for. And verses 6 through 10 are going to unpack exactly how it's used. You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generation. generations. You shall not offer any 
unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. How is this thing supposed to be used? Well, first, God told them where to put it. In verse 6, he says it's supposed to go in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've been following with us these last three weeks, you realize that this is oddly specific. When we talked about the other furniture, where it went, there was a description of the lampstand. It went on the north side of the tabernacle, and there was a description of the table of the showbread. Actually, I got that wrong. The lampstand was on the south side. The table of showbread was on the north side. But here, the way God describes this in verse 6 is he says it goes in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. See, God is giving us a sense of its purpose. This incense was to burn before the Lord. We might think that this is uh, where we get this phrase. You, you hear it a lot in the law, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But that's not what this is talking about. That's actually about uh, sin offerings and food offerings, uh, lambs and such that are burnt on the altar uh, for offerings for the, the nation of Israel. But this phrase is not used, or this site is not used with that phrase. We get another description of its use in verses 7 and 8. Aaron is to burn incense on it every morning, verse 7, and every evening in verse 8. Every day, Aaron is to enter into the holy place, not the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, but into the holy place, and he is there to burn incense before the Lord. Third, the thing we get is a statement about its misuse. So we have construction in verses 1 through 6. We have its use in verses 7 through 8, and then its misuse in verse 9, where we're not supposed to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, or the Israelites were not supposed to offer those things on this particular altar. This altar's purpose was for incense and incense alone, and it was not to be a place where you burnt uh, kind of unlawful incense. There will be a description about what kind of incense and how to make it uh, later on in our chapter here this morning. Finally, God gives direction in verse 10 for making atonement for this particular thing, this uh, kind of directions for undoing the pollution that it experiences. See, Aaron is to make atonement once a year by spreading blood from the altar of sacrifice out in the courtyard and bringing it in and spreading it on the horns of this particular piece of furniture. And this was to happen once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so as they were making atonement for the nation, as they were making atonement for the tabernacle, they would take some blood from the altar and they would spread it on the horns of this altar of incense. The natural question here is this, how does a piece of furniture need atonement? What sin does a piece of furniture perform that it needs atoned for? Now, some of you who are uh, you know, into feng shui and all these things, you say, oh yes, that, that furniture is a sin. That's not what we're talking about here this morning, right? What it is, is this is actually a statement of those who use it. The priests who sin with their hands and their lips, they pollute the items in the tabernacle. They bring their sinfulness into the presence of God. And God is saying, no, you need to atone. Every year, you need to atone for these items that are touched with sinful hands. They are overseen by sinful men. And so they need atonement. 
So they're atoned for that sin. The second thing that we see is not just this altar of incense in verses 1 through 10. We see a call to a census tax in verses 11 through 16. Verses 11 through 15 tell us how Israel was to take that tax. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, obviously half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. It'd be hard for us to understand how exactly this fits with what's been happening, but but God is describing an instance in which he would call for a census of the people. Uh, We have a couple different examples of this in Scripture. It happens in the book of Numbers. Uh, Moses and the people of Israel are kind of traveling around, and Moses wants, or God wants Moses to take a census. And sure enough, as he does so, I believe it's in Numbers 36, he kind of numbers all of these people, and then each person brings an offering of silver to the Lord. If we go back and remember and say, what exactly is this all about? We were to go back into the plagues of Israel or the plagues of Egypt that Israel was present for. It's not just that that God had saved the firstborn children of Israel from the angel of death. God had saved them from various plagues boils, and so on and so forth. And now God is allowing them to uh, kind of be continually saved through atonement from those plagues that have been uh, put on the nation of Egypt. You might say, what, what exactly is the purpose? Well, one of the purposes is that in verse 16, go ahead and look at verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting. So the purpose of this tax is not just to make atonement, it's also to upkeep this tabernacle that is constantly getting dragged around from location to location. Items would get worn out, they would need to be replaced, and so God is making provision for this tabernacle to be kept up as it were. The third thing we see is not just, okay, we see an altar of incense, we see a census tax. The third thing we see is a directions for the bronze basin, or what we might call the laver, in verses 17 through 21. Now, first, we get a basic sense of its construction. Now, in verses 17 uh, through 19, there's just very little requirement given about how to build this bronze basin. In fact, we know two things. It's made in two parts. There's a basin and a stand and it's to be made of bronze. There's no dimensions given. There's nothing else stated about it. It's really kind of open-ended. But we do get a sense of the basin's use in verses 20 through 21. Look at with me at verse 20. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near, that's the priests, when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. You can see then that the directions center on this consistent washing, that if a a priest is to come in and to offer sacrifice, to come into the holy place, he must first wash his hands and wash his feet. And it's kind of like COVID-19, you were supposed to do that so that you may not die, right? Remember those early days of COVID when you would wash and wash and wash because we were all afraid? Well, that's exactly the kind of fear that the Lord wants them to have. 
So we see that. We see the altar of incense, the census taken, the bronze basin, and then we see the description of how to make anointing oil and incense. Verses 22 through 33 give us these two different descriptions of how to make these things. And so 22 and 20 through 25 uh, tells us the mixture of this anointing oil. The concoction is this mixture of myrrh and cinnamon and aromatic cane and cassia. This was to be mixed in four quarts of olive oil, according to verse 25. And all of this was to be done as by a perfumer, according to verse 25. And it was to be holy to the Lord. Verses 26 through 31 tell us about how how this anointing oil is to be used. They describe that virtually everything used in the tabernacle, including the priests themselves, were to be anointed so as to be consecrated. It simply means that every item used in the temple, the lampstand, the utensils, the ark itself, all of these things were to be smeared with this anointing oil. And once they had been anointed, they were considered holy to the Lord. They weren't supposed to be taken out and taken home for show and tell or whatever else it might be. Verses 32 through 33, as all of these sections do, has described to us a misuse of the anointing oil. Look at verse 32. It shall not be poured on the body of any ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It's holy, and it shall be holy to you. No one was supposed to make this concoction themselves, and no one was supposed to spread it on someone who was not uh, fit for use in the temple. They weren't a son of Levi, or they were had other restrictions going on. See, this oil was reserved for a specific use. Verse 33 tells us the consequence of this. It says that uh, whoever does this, does this, whoever does this will be cut off from his people. means they're going to be put to death. In the last section, we saw that if the priest didn't wash their hands, that they would surely die. Here we see that if, if they do this black market anointing oil, that they will be cut off from their people. It goes on to describe not just the anointing oil, but the incense. Verses 34 through 38 describe the creation of this incense, how to mix it, what to do with it. Verses 34, give, 35 give us the kind of recipe, as it were, right? Sweet spices, stacta, anicha, galbanum, Pure frankincense. I needed Jody to give me the pronunciations for these. It was to be seasoned with salt, and it was to be pure and holy according to verse 35. But this was to be used specifically before the mercy seat on that particular altar that we've already described. There's reason to believe that this incense was offered inside the tabernacle while other priests were outside the tabernacle offering prayers. We get this from Luke chapter 1 when Zacharias, the the father of John the Baptist, goes in to offer incense because he is selected as the high priest that year. He goes in to offer this, uh, this incense and the others are outside waiting in prayer as he offers this incense. Verses 37 through 38 tell us about the misuse. This incense is not supposed to be used outside the tabernacle. The incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off 
from his people. It's not to be used for personal use. And again, the consequences are dire. That person was to be cut off from their people. They were to be put to death. I just want to draw out a couple different implications that we see from this passage. If we've been reading through it in our community group and we've kind of been chewing on it, this might be a few things that stood out to us. First, God gives instruction for use. We're, by the way, in our second point, drawing near has particular guidelines. The first thing we see is that God gives instructions for use. Each section comes with a, a type of instruction about how to use each uh, part that's given to us. The section uh, concerning the altar of incense doesn't just tell us how to build it. It tells us how to use it or, or how to function with it in verses 7 through 8. The, the section on the census tell us who's, tells us who's to be counted, uh, what tax rate they're to pay in verses 13 and 16, and what's to be done with the silver that's collected in verse 16. Remember, it's a grace of God when he tells us what things to do. He gives us his law because we, he, he, we want the wrong things. Here, God directs us because holiness and righteousness are foreign to his people. It's a reminder this morning that God's gracious to direct us, isn't he? He's gracious to give us instructions. The second thing we see is that God gives warnings against the abuse of these items. It's not just how you use them, it's how you don't use them. Notice that we're told specifically how not to use the altar of incense. We're not to burn foreign incense. You're not to burn uh, sacrifices on that particular altar. Verse 12 tells us about the, the misuse of the census could cause plagues. In fact, we see this happen in the life of David as he calls for a census that the Lord did not call for, and the Lord sends a plague on the land. Verses 32 and 33 and 37 and 38 show us how not to use anointing oil and incense so that Israel was firmly warned about the negative use of those things. God is good to warn us about how we might violate his holiness and his righteousness. Like a good guide, he's telling us where the pitfalls are. And so God is good to direct us and to instruct us, but he's also good to warn us. Third thing we see is that God gives instructions for atonement. Notice the words atonement are used in verses 10, verse 16. Verse 11 uses the word ransom. Both of these terms imply that there's a payment for human sinfulness. That we can cover over the sinfulness of mankind through a blood sacrifice. See, God is good not just to instruct us and not just to warn us. God's good to give us instruction about how we become reconciled to Him. God's good to show us what atonement looks like. I wonder this morning if you could envision such a thing. But if there was a king or queen or a president or some dignitary that you wanted to get yourself in the presence of, you would have to go through this particular set of hoops. You would have to get some type of clearance, right? You would have to uh, set up some kind of status with the government or, or something else. You would have to go through these series of, of, of kind of uh, vetting so that you could come into the presence of this dignitary. What the Lord lays out for us in this section of his law is how can we come into his presence? 
See, God has made a way into his presence. Our third point this morning, he's made a way for us to draw near. I don't know if you've paid attention to that phrase in the scriptures, but there's a long history of this phrasing in the Bible of drawing near. In the book of Numbers, in Numbers 16, there's this kind of rebellion that rises up against Moses. And Moses calls for these sons of Korah to grab censers in which they would offer incense before the Lord. And so there's 250 men that think of themselves as holy. And so Moses invites them, come and offer incense before the Lord. If you think you are holy enough, if you think you are designated like Aaron is designated, come before the presence of the Lord and offer this incense, and the result is disastrous. Number 16 records that fire breaks out from the presence of the Lord and destroys these 250 men, these men that are called by Moses to draw near. Now, a more positive experience is in the book of Hebrews, as, as the author of Hebrews is telling us time and time again about how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than the high priest. And time and time again, in the book of Hebrews, he's using our phrase, draw near. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a better high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, we are invited in Christ to draw near. But if we were in the days of Moses, none of us in this room could draw near. None of us could be in the presence of holiness. None of us could cut through the veil. Notice in this passage, in Exodus 25 all the way through 31, what God gives to the nation of Israel so that at least someone can draw near. He gives them an altar for sacrifice, and the amount of sacrifices that are made is just staggering. If you read through the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you start to count up the dead bodies that start to accumulate, and you say, no wonder they kept having to move. There's carcasses all around them, burnt offerings everywhere. So they were given this altar for sacrifice. God gave them a system of sacrifices that would temporarily deal with their sin. It's not just that. In between this altar and the tent of meeting was this laver. Now, not yet. Give me a second. Oh, excuse me. You're right. Anthony's on it. You should be there. Draw near, Anthony. You didn't sin. I did. The second thing we see between the altar and the tent of meeting is this laver, the basin. All sin is water. The priest, every time he goes in, he's supposed to wash his hands, wash his feet to be cleansed from whatever pollutions may have accumulated on himself before he goes into this tent of meeting. 
Another thing that they're given is the altar of incense uh, where the priest draws near. He offers this incense and he prays these prayers in front of the presence of God, right? See, these three things kind of constitute the path from which we go from outside this tent to come into the presence of the tent of meeting. But even then you had to know who your dad was, right? You had to be from the right lineage and you had to have the right perfect formation of your body, and you had to be male, and you had to be all of these different things. If you were to come into the presence of the most holy God in the holy place, you had to check all the boxes. I might say this morning, we might stop and just say, what does this, this tent have to do with me? What connection is there between Moses in 1200 BC and Jason in 2024 AD? What connection is there between this nomadic people who live in a desert and this affluent people who live in houses in North America? See, the commonality between 1200 BC And 2024 AD cannot be found in us. It has to do with a righteous, holy God who always deals with his people in the same fashion. This altar is a shadow of something to come. This tent foreshadows the thing that God's going to show us later in Christ. God is fundamentally unchanging. And the thing he's seeking to accomplish in showing us this tabernacle is to foreshadow the things he's going to accomplish in Christ. God is going to make a way into his presence, not with blood of bulls and goats and washings with water and incense. He's going to give you Christ. God has made a way that stands in keeping with the design that is before us in this temple. I want to pull up the second slide here this morning. If we were to kind of fast forward from these items to their New Testament counterparts, this is what we would see. The first thing we learn about is the bronze altar, the place of sacrifice. It was so often a place for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the John the Baptist statement. When he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the one laid upon the altar. Jesus is the one sacrificed. His blood spilled out for forgiveness of his people. It's the statement made in in 1 Peter 1. Peter tells us that Christ was like a lamb without spot or blemish. As we come with New Testament eyes, we see that the altar reminds us of the person of Christ. The second two get a little less obvious. When we talk about the bronze basin, we we understand the washing of water with the word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 tells us that 
husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and that they should uh, devote themselves having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. We also see in John 13 that Peter raises this objection while, while Jesus is about to wash his disciples' feet. Peter says, no, no, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus says, that if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter says, no, then not just my feet, then my head and my hands as well. And, and Jesus makes this statement in John 13. He says, hey, if you've already been washed and you're already clean, but, but you need ongoing cleansing of your feet. See, we need this ongoing sanctification and the word is the process or the word is the tool that God has given to us for that. See, the washing of the word is our ongoing devo- devotion to Christ-likeness. It's informed by God's holy word, empowered by his Holy Spirit. But as we have been cleansed through the sacrifice of Christ, now we have this ongoing sanctification, this ongoing life change as we hold up our lives to the mirror of God's word and we see the places we're not in conformity. The altar of incense inside the holy place Time and time again in the scriptures is likened to the prayers of God's people. If we were to go to Revelation 5 and 8, we would see these kind of bowls that were filled with incense that John tells us are the prayers of God's people. More directly in Psalm 141, David says this, he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. There's always this kind of link between prayer and and the sweet aroma of incense. This is the worship of God's saints before his presence. What we see then is this direct line, like through the sacrifice of Christ, through the consistent cleansing and washing through the words of God, through the process of prayer before God's presence, God lays out a place for us to draw near way for us to draw close to our God in Christ. So Christian, draw near. Draw near. You might say, Jason, what do you mean by that? Draw near. It sounds vaguely spiritual. It sounds like it has the semblance of some sort of religiosity. But what does it practically, specifically mean. First, I want to just say it's not my phrase. I didn't make it up. This is from the Scriptures themselves. One of the most notable places we see this is in James 5. James says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice James' imperatives in that sentence. Draw near, cleanse, purify Perhaps this gives us a sense of the work that's to be done. If we're to draw near to God, we cannot harbor sinfulness. Christian, the atonement made by Christ is an entry point into a life submitted to him. It is a beginning of a life of constant chasing after godliness and holiness. It is a call to lay aside uh, still more of your sinful pattern. It's a call to, to make God your deepest joy, to leave behind the pleasure of whatever sin that entangles you and to draw near to him in prayer, to draw near 
is to make God your highest joy. To seek after his presence, not just in a, a hour-long quiet time at some point during your day. To draw near is a constant state of mindfulness of God's presence with you and the grace and mercy that he has shown you in Christ. This morning, God has granted us full access to his presence through the death of Jesus. So there's three remembrances we have in accordance with our temple diagram this morning. First, remember cross. Remember Christ's sacrifice for you. You cannot draw near without Christ. And when Satan wants to remind you of all the reasons you should have no access to God, we can cling to the cross. We can cling to the promises that God has made us. You ever feel like that? You have a day where you're just reminded of all of your failings of the past. Maybe even your failings of the last 24 hours. You're reminded of all of these sins that are heaping up on your shoulders. Let me just tell you this morning, that is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit draws us closer to Christ, reminds us of the goodness of Christ. That condemnation comes from your flesh, flesh, or somewhere else. Remember the sacrifice that Christ has made. Secondly, remember the word which cleanses you. Pick it up day after day, read it, meditate on it, chew on it, integrate it to your life. Allow the words of God to, to shape and form your desires and your wants. And if a notion pops into your head that says, I want this, and you say, that is not what the Lord wants, then you have to grab that thought, take it hold, and make it sub sub obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember, sacrifice. Remember the word. Remember prayer, which is a sweet aroma to our God. Remember to bring your deepest concerns, your deepest desires to him. Lay your burdens at his feet. And with all of this, if you remember the sacrifice, if you remember the word which cleanses you, if you remember the sweet prayers, the aroma before our God, I, I promise you, I dare you, tell me that your life isn't sweeter and more worthwhile. Tell me that you're dissatisfied with it. If you do these three things, if you remember the cross, if you remember the word, if you remember prayer, if you remember the sweetness of drawing near to Christ, I promise you, you will find a quality of life that you had not ascertained before. It's the promise of Psalm 16. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Christian, he beckons you. He has given you every advantage, every tool necessary to you. He wants you to draw near to him. Will you come? Will you come? Will you prefer this nearness of your God to the selfish pursuits that fill up our lives so easily? Will you come? Let's pray. Give us confidence now.
plead with you. I pray that you would give us confidence to come before you with, with all of our need. Remind us of the provision that you have given us in Christ. Right now, he goes behind the veil and through his blood, we also can come into your presence. So Lord, let us reorient our lives to this priority of drawing near to you. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to cling to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.